You're listening to a sermon audio from Cypress Church. You can listen to more sermons on our website or by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. We hope you enjoy the sermon and invite you to attend one of our services at 9 and 1030 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Oh, okay. The lights were going to come on. I thought we were just going to keep rolling with that the whole time. My name is Stan. I am the youth pastor here at Cypress Church. If I haven't said to, said to you yet, uh, good morning and welcome. We're glad that you're here this morning. So I have the opportunity to preach, and so I'm really excited about that. But before we get to the actual preaching, we'll just take a brief survey. Uh, how many of you are the kind of people that like puzzles? So raise your hands. Really, this many of you. Like, what is wrong with all of you? <laughs> I cannot stand puzzles, so I... I was not expecting such a puzzle-oriented church uh, at, that I would be preaching at, so I'm going to have to adjust this on the fly. No. So, puzzles. Okay. So, lots of you like puzzles. How many of you have ever had the experience where you have tried to do a puzzle without the cover? So, anybody ever attempt to do that? Yeah. Okay. A few of us, and you are like, oh, wow, I just, this is just not working. Let's turn it all over and just try and make all the brown fit together and you know, just see how that goes. Okay. So usually you get pretty frustrated, give up pretty quickly. Now, how many of you have ever had the experience where you have started a puzzle and you're looking at the cover and then you realize you have the wrong pieces for that cover? Has anybody ended up in that scenario before? And you're like, man, there's a lot of green here. I didn't even know this puzzle had green. Like, what are we doing? And no matter how hard you try to make the dogs playing poker, if you have a Thomas Kincaid puzzle, you will always end up with a lighthouse. No matter how hard you try and fit those things together, and no matter how much crazy glue you have, it just won't work. You won't be able to produce the cover because the pieces that you have are different than what the cover is, right? And sometimes this is how I feel about my relationship with God, that I have been given a cover and been given a different set of pieces to go along with that cover. I don't know if you guys have ever felt that, but you feel like, wow, like what is going on? Like, how come this isn't working? Why are things different? How come it doesn't look the way that it's supposed to look? And you're saying, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with my relationship with God? What is, why is this not working? I don't know if that's something that you guys can relate to, but that's something that I feel is a pretty regular thing. And I think the issue is not with the pieces, but it's that a lot of us have been sold a different cover than what was supposed to go with the pieces. A lot of us have been told a relationship with God looks a certain way based off Christian culture or based off looking at other people and how their relationship with God looks or based off any number of factors. And then when we're trying to fit the puzzle pieces to that cover, we find ourselves getting really frustrated. And so today we're going to be exploring that idea. And so uh, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at a story uh, that probably all of us have heard. If you've been in the church for any number of years, you've probably heard this this story before. And this is the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And uh, this story's in every one of the Gospels, and as I was praying about how to cover the story and how to uh, explain it, uh, I decided that what I'd want to do is go through it through the book of John, even though we're in a series over the book of Matthew. And so where we're going to be is in John chapter 6, verse 25. Uh, so if you want to open up a Bible, if you need a Bible, uh, you didn't bring one this morning, you can raise your hand and an usher will bring one to you, and you can just leave that one on your seat when you're done. But if you need a Bible, uh, we have some available at the welcome desk for you, and you can just grab those, and those are yours to have and use uh, you know, for your own reading. So, uh, basically, all of the Gospels have this part in it. So what happens is that you have Jesus, and he's pretty popular at this time period, and, you know, he's been doing lots of healings and lots of miracles and things like that. So he's gathered this huge crowd of people around him, and they've heard him speak. And then they've been there all day. And so the disciples come up to Jesus, and they say, hey, Jesus, it's getting kind of late. We need to send these people home. They need to eat. And he says, you guys give them something to eat. And they say, well, Jesus, 
we don't have anything to give them. And he says, well, what do you have? He's like, well, we have nothing. We have a Boy Scout over here. He's got five loaves and two fish. He's in junior high. I don't know why he was the, that's the real miracle here, that a junior high boy was the most prepared person out of all the people here. And Jesus says, bring it here. He takes the five loaves and two fish, hands them out to everybody, and everybody gets fed. And it says that 5,000 men, which means that there are 5,000 heads of households. So really, you know, you have the men and the women and the children. So more like 10,000 to 15,000 people get fed that day. And then what ends up happening is that uh, Jesus says, okay, everyone goes into a food coma. They all take, you know, camp out for the night. Jesus puts the disciples in a boat, sends them out. He disappears. Then you have a storm hit the boat that the disciples are in, and Jesus comes walking to them on the water. Peter sees this, fails to walk on the water. Jesus calms the storm, and then they get to the other side. And on the other side, all the gospels say that everyone came and saw Jesus and talked to him about the event. And John is the one that actually records for us what people said about this event. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, and so we're going to be in chapter 6, verse 25, and it's a fairly long passage, so we'll just kind of survey it as we go. But it says, uh, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw, your, saw signs, because you ate your loaves, your fill of loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So everyone wakes up. They don't know where Jesus is. They realize he's gone to the other side. They come and find him. And Jesus sees them and he says, I know that you guys are here, not because you were impressed with the miracle, but because you got fed and you're just looking for another free meal. And he says, what I have to offer you is actually better than what I gave you before. I can give you eternal life. Now, for those of us who have been in the church for a long time, eternal life to us usually means um, you know, going to heaven when you die. Eternal life in the book of John is used a little bit differently. What eternal life in the book of John has to do with is it has to do with these, this idea of two different ages. And so the Jews thought that there were two ages. There was the age that they were in where, you know, sin ruled and they were oppressed and all these bad things were happening to them as a nation. And then there was the age to come that was ushered in by the Messiah. And that was the age where they were, you know, blessed abundantly and God was in control and there, you know, all this great stuff was happening for them. And there was all these metaphors that were uh, used to describe the age to come. And one of them was a banquet table. And the banquet table was this idea that there was, this, there was going to be in the age to come a giant table with abundant food and everything that you could ever want there. And the goal was to get a seat at the table because God was the person throwing the banquet. And so you wanted to experience, you want to get invited into the table. And so that's kind of the, the image that we're going to keep in our minds as we're exploring what they say. And so Jesus is saying, I can give you food that will take you into that next age. I can give you a seat at the table. And it says this in verse 28. Then they said to him, okay, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. And so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What works do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. So, pause there for a second. So they say, okay, what must we do? And they say, and Jesus says, believe in me, because God sent me. And, he says, and then they make this reference, and they say, okay, well, if you're from God, be like Moses. Moses gave our ancestors bread in the wilderness, so you do the same thing. And so they make this reference to this uh, event that happens in the Old Testament about manna. And so manna is this idea, basically, you know, Israel was in slavery in Egypt, and then they got out of slavery, you know, across the Red Sea, and then they got into the wilderness. And what happened was then Israel said, okay, God, how will you feed us now that we're in the wilderness? Because when they were in Egypt, 
the God fed them through, you know, the agriculture. You know, they farmed. Egypt was an agricultural society. When they got to the other side of the Red Sea, all of a sudden they were a nomadic people, and they couldn't just hunt and gather forever. You know, they had, you know, one and a half million people, so you just can't hunt and gather forever. And so what God said he would do is he would give them this thing called manna. And manna was basically a cracker that God would uh, have appear every morning with the dew. And there were some rules to this. Basically, God said, um, what you would do in the morning is you would gather as much manna as you need for your family for that day. And then you would eat it, and whatever was left over would rot. And you would do this every day. Every day you would go to bed knowing that you had nothing, and every morning you would wake up to see what God had given you. And the only day that it was different was on the day before the Sabbath. And God said, okay, on the day before the Sabbath, you can gather twice as much for two days, and that food won't rot in the next day. It will carry over through the Sabbath. And so Israel did this for 40 years. So these guys are saying to Jesus, okay, do what Moses used to do for us. He used to give us bread every day. We could go to bed knowing we didn't have anything because we knew that Moses would give it to us. You know, and so uh, they're asking for Jesus to perform the same miracle. But there was another part to this manna equation that they should have remembered. And basically uh, what happened was Israel had been in the wilderness, and God said, okay, I'm going to take you into the promised land, and they refused to go. And so he said, okay, then I will let you, this generation, die out, and the next generation will get to go. And so they wandered around for 40 years for that generation to die out. And all you had left at the end of that generation was Moses, Caleb, and Joshua. And Moses wasn't even going to get to go into the promised land. And so Moses uh, writes his last book of, the, of, of his writings called Deuteronomy, and in it he's explaining to the people, hey, these were the lessons we were supposed to learn uh, in the wilderness. This is what God was trying to do with us. And so this is what he had to say about manna. And I'm just going to read a couple verses for you. This is Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 6. It says, The whole commandment that I command to you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these forty years. Know then in your heart, as a man disciplines his son, the Lord God disciplines you. So then you shall keep his commandments, keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. And so there were these lessons. Oh, I'm going to need that in a second. All right, so these lessons in, uh, associated with manna that God was using and why he did things this way. He's to tra- teach them that they're not satisfied in bread alone, to teach them that he relates to them as a father, and to teach them that ultimately they live by his word and what he says he's going to do, and they trust in that and not according to the bread. And that's point number one. Manna to teach us that we live by the word of God. Okay? Because the reason, you know, God could have done this any number of ways. God could have opened a Costco, and, you know, you go to Costco, and you buy your bulk manna for the rest of the year, and then you just eat your matzah and crackers every day, and then you just go once a year. And then, you know, when you run out, you know, or you just, that that's could have been the way that God did it. But God chose to do it this way, where you would be going to bed with nothing and having to wake up expecting God to show up, because he wanted to instill that idea in them that, hey, if God says he will do something, you can count that he'll do it. And so when that was a lesson that they were then to draw on to look back and say, as they're going forward and say, hey, 
when we're looking at a scenario and we're saying, hey, I don't know if we can do this. I don't know if we can, if we can actually take over those people or get into the promised land or defeat this army that's invading us or anything like that. And they would say, there's nothing about us that would let us to believe it except for the fact that God said he would do it for us. They could say, yeah, remember how he did it with the manna. We know that because he provided for the, with the manna for 40 years, that he can do this for us. And that was the idea of manna. That's what they were supposed to get. So the people talking to Jesus have forgotten the Deuteronomy stuff, and they've just focused on the actual event and what had happened. So this is what Jesus says to them. It says in, uh, we're in verse 32 now. He says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said to you that you have sent, sorry, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that has been given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so what Jesus says is he says, okay, you guys want this. You've, you've already missed the point. Moses wasn't the one giving you the bread. I, Jesus, or God was the one giving you the bread, and now he's giving you me. I'm the new manna. And this is point number two. The idea that Jesus is trying to draw on here and the way he's trying to make some similar comparisons between what had happened in the Old Testament and what is happening now, as he's saying, I'm the new manna. I'm the bread that God is giving to you. And if you will accept me and uh, live by me, you will get to the eternal age. You will get to the banquet table. You will get to the age that is to come. And even though you're looking at your historical circumstances and everything that's going on around you and saying, man, there's no way that we could believe that that will actually happen. There's no reason to believe that we'll actually get to this age to come. Because they were under Roman oppression. They, nothing was happening in the Jews' favor at this point. Jesus is saying, but I'm the manna. I'm the guarantee that God will do what he says. I'm the one that you can look to and say, okay, even though we are facing the circumstances and believe that God is not with us, we have Jesus, and so therefore we know that he is with us, and that's our guarantee. And so that's, what, that's the offer that Jesus is essentially making. And this is the response, and we're going to kind of skip around because there's a lot of grumbling that happens. So it says, uh, or actually we'll just read it. It says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we don't even know? How, do we, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, don't grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father has seen, sent, sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So they grumble. They're like, this guy, we don't even know who his dad is. You know, his mom made up this story about the virgin birth. We don't know what's going on with this guy. And yet he's claiming to be from heaven. And Jesus goes on. He says, don't get caught up in those deal, details. Follow me. I'm from God. And then he just cuts to the chase in verse 47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and now they're dead. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and this bread that I will give you for life, uh, for the life of the world, is my flesh. And so Jesus says, look, you want me to do it the way that Moses used to do it or the way that you've understood Moses to do it, those people are all dead. They're not here anymore. 
I'm offering you something that's going to get you to the age to come. I'm going to offer you something that means you won't have to die ever. And then he goes into this whole uh, explanation of how they need to eat of his flesh and drink of his blood. And this is a reference, future reference to communion and how communion represents what Jesus does on the cross for us, how he, uh, his body is broken for us and his blood is shed for us. And he explains that. And then you get to verse 60. Uh, no, sorry, 66. And basically everyone has heard this. 60 to 65, people are still complaining about him. And then it says in verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. And from this moment, Jesus starts to lose followers. And people who, you know, normally we hear this, hear this story and we look at it and say, wow, look at how God can provide for anything, you know. But the conversation and the way the Jews interpreted this actually ended up being a dividing line between what Jesus was trying to do and what they wanted him to do. And now people are starting to turn away from Jesus and are starting to reject him. And the question then becomes, why did they reject him? Why, you know, it wasn't so much that the offer uh, was not really great. You know, Jesus is saying, I can give you something that will cause you to live forever. Jesus is offering to do something really amazing for them. He's offering them a seat at the banquet table, the thing that they're supposed to be longing for and hoping for and putting their entire uh, dreams in. And it wasn't that the miracle was bad either. You know, it's not like it was, you know, kind of a lame miracle and they're like, well, I don't know if you can really deliver on this. You know, he fed 15,000 people. Like, that, nothing like that had ever been seen before. And so it wasn't that what Jesus was doing was not good enough to prove that he could deliver. And it's not that the gift that he was offering them wasn't very great. The issue, and this is the key, the issue for them was that Jesus wasn't what they wanted him to be. They had such, low, such a low satisfaction threshold. All they wanted was bread. And so when Jesus offered them something more, they didn't want it because all Jesus was to them was a means to the ends. Jesus was just a way of getting the things that they ultimately wanted. And they rejected him because of that. Because when he didn't fit their mold and he didn't fit what they wanted him to do, they said, okay, we don't want this anymore. We want Jesus who fits in our box and our way and our way of doing things. And if you're not going to be that, Jesus, we don't really want you. We'll go to something else to get what we want because all we really want is bread. And in the same way, I think that's how a lot of us relate to God. You know, we have a relationship with God that is very means and ends focused. We are trying to get him to do what we want him to do. And so we, you know, go to Jesus and we say, Jesus, I've got a problem. Fix it. Jesus, I've got a thing that I want. Give it to me. Jesus, something is wrong. Do something about it. Jesus, I've got this character flaw. You need to change that about me. And Jesus, my kids are screwed up. Make the youth pastor do something about it. You know, that's, you know, that's where you've really gone astray on that one. You know? But even, you know, even this is how a lot of us have come to faith, even. You know, the options are you can go to heaven where apparently you have a harp and wings and maybe your baby, I don't know, there's lots of clouds. Or you can go to hell and there's, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth and, you know, pitchforks and, you know, all sorts of bad things. And you're like, well, I don't really like the hell option, so I guess heaven's the better of the two. And so a lot of us are just saved based off that. And we say, okay, I don't want hell, so I have a relationship with God just so I don't go to hell. You know, and that's how a lot of us are. And here's the thing, and this is point number three. If Jesus is just your means to an end, you know, to get the things that you want, you will always end up rejecting him. If Jesus is just the way that you get the thing that you really want uh, out of life, and Jesus is just the way to get it, you'll end up rejecting him. You'll either reject him in the beginning when you hear what the offer is, and you'll hear uh, that the reward is not really what you ultimately want, and so you'll say, okay, I don't want any part of that. You might say, I don't think hell's real. I'm okay with hell. I don't know what happens to me after I die. I'll, you know, run the risk. Or 
you'll end up rejecting Jesus down the line when he doesn't work the way that you want him to work. You know, you'll start this relationship and you'll start following him and you'll start trying to get the things that you want. And when it doesn't end up panning out the way that you want it to, you'll end up saying, okay, I'm done with this. And that's where I think a lot of us end up finding ourselves. I think that's the cover that a lot of us have, that God is just the means to an end, the way to me, for me to get the American dream. And he's very, you know, free market, you know, risk management oriented Jesus who, you know, he just exists for me to get the things that I want. And then when something goes wrong, I go to him and I say, okay, you need to fix these problems. And I'm going to pray really hard. And I'm going to you know, read my Bible a lot. And I'm going to try and get these things out of you by doing the things that I want. And I think if you fi- find yourself in that, you're just on the edge of just one step away from walking away. You're right. You're one step away from saying, I'm done with this thing because it's not working the way that I wanted it to. It's not working the way that I was told it should. No matter how hard I try and force Jesus to work for me, he's not working for me. And I think what you've been sold is not the right box cover to go with the pieces. But I think what you've been given in the pieces is a lot better than what you currently have. And what we've been given is a relationship with God uh, that is entirely different than this. So, uh, Let me catch up on my notes real quick, sorry. Um, What God wants to be is not this, you know, get you what you want sort of thing. This is what he wants to be. I was trying to figure out a passage that would really explain this. And the thing is, there are just so many passages passages that say this. So figuring out just one uh, was really hard to do. So I'm just going to read you the one out of Ezekiel that I really like. It says, this this in Ezekiel 11, verse 19 and 20. It says, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit, and I will put it with them, in them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. What does God want to be for us? He wants to be God, and he wants us to be his people. It's that simple. It's not any more complicated than that. He just wants to be the thing that we worship, and that we love, and that we adore, and that we live by, and that we trust in, and that we put our hope in, and that we believe in. And in doing that, we become his people. He wants us to be the people who are solely in relationship with him and focus in him, that our hearts are entirely given over to him. And you might be saying, okay, well, that doesn't sound that much better than, you know, Jesus who gets me the things that I want, uh, because at least in that scenario, I might get something. In this scenario, now I'm just God's people, and there's no guarantees of me getting anything. And yeah, it doesn't sound much better until you start understanding the way that you go about becoming God's people. The way we go about becoming God's people is that Jesus becomes who we worship when we understand his love. That's point four. Are we there? There we go. Uh, Jesus is meant to be who we love and worship, and uh, Jesus becomes who we worship when we understand his love. The way that God goes about becoming our people is by first displaying his love to us, and then we respond to it. And that's called grace. God gives you his gracious favor, his gifts, his, his love, his kindness, all these things first, and then he asks you to respond to it. He doesn't ask you to decide to be with him, and then he gives you the gifts. Because all of us have a God already, something we're living and worshiping for, something that we are trusting and glorifying, something that we believe that our hearts deserve, and God is saying to us, I have already loved you better than anything else out there. And I am willing to give it to you first and allow you to respond to that. Every other God that you might trust in, every other pretender God that might be out there is going to say, trust me first, do all these things for me first, and then maybe if you're good enough, I'll give that to you. 
But our God says, no, I'll give it to you first. I'll give the gifts. I'll take you to the banquet table, and then I'll let you respond to seeing that love. And it starts with Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. God says, I'll give my son first. I'll put him on the cross first for you. I'll put him to pay the penalty first for you. I'll take the punishment in your place first, so that way you can see that and know how much I love you, so that you can respond to that. The, the metaphor, you know, when we're reading the Bible and there's all these metaphors and explanations for how this works, one of them is this adoption language. And it says that God was, that we were orphans and alienated and without families. And God says, I am willing to give up my own son and exile him out of the family to bring you in. And I don't know that any of us could ever do that, you know, to say, you know, some of us might love adoption, but if it meant you had to give your own kid up instead to adopt that kid, that cost might be too high for any of us. But that's what God is willing to do. He's willing to say, no, I will, I will pay whatever cost it is to get you. That's how much I love you. Uh, as you start to be in this relationship, you start to understand that the love is even deeper than that. Uh, God loves us unconditionally. It's not based on anything we do. It's not based on uh, whether we're good enough or if we're really bad. It's just given to us. It doesn't change based on anything. Uh, it's inseparable for you, meaning that there's nothing that can ever happen to you that will cause you to believe that God has abandoned you. There's nothing that can ever come up against you that can take you away from God. There's no way that you can get far away from God. You know, you might say, I want to run from him. I'm tired of him. And he says, no, I'll just, I'll be right there. I'm everywhere. So the, no, matter, no matter where you are, I will be there because I love you so much that I won't let you run away from me, even if you want to. God doesn't ask us to get cleaned up and then says, okay, then, okay, now that you're moderately okay, now you can start following me. It says, no, I'll take you as you are. Um, in youth group, we've been going through the book of Luke, and we just covered the story of how Matthew became a disciple. And Matthew was a tax collector, and he, uh, you know, was, because of his tax collecting, was ostracized from society, and he was put in this category of sinful people. And so he was only allowed to hang out with other sinful people, so criminals and prostitutes and tax collectors and, and the like. And Jesus says, no, that's the person who I want to be in relationship with. That's the person who is part of this new thing that I'm doing. And what ends up happening is they have a party together. And when you ate with someone in, the, in that time period, you were saying, the people who I'm eating with, I am saying, these are the kinds of people who will be at the banquet table with God down the line. And in that case, they are literally at the banquet table with Jesus. You know, they are literally with God eating and having a party. And Jesus says, this is, the kind, this is what it will look like in the kingdom of heaven. This is what the new age looks like. And then, you know, the Pharisees start grumbling and they say, how could he eat with those kinds of people? How could he eat with these sinners and these awful people? And Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. And my presence with them is going to bring healing to them. You know, and so... Another part of God's love is that he looks at the cancers, the, the sinful things in us that are hurting us and tearing us apart and ultimately leading us into uh, just awful circumstances and awful, awful consequences and all these things. And he says, I'll heal those things. I'll love them enough to do the surgery for them and to get them where they need to go. And then when we start to get it and we actually start to repent, it's not like God is like, okay, well, finally, I've been doing this for 20 years and now you're finally getting it. Or he scolds us and he's like, I told you so. Like, it took us this long. No, it says that the picture of when someone repents in the Bible is that God parties. He throws a celebration because God loves repentance. 
God loves it when we finally get it. He doesn't care how long it takes us for us to finally get it. He just loves us that we do get it. And he'll be with us patient enough until we get there. And we could just go on and on about the ways in which God loves us, about his provision, about how he's there with us in circumstances, how he's uh, there with us in suffering. And you just, you start reading the Bible and you'll just see that God's love, no matter how much you explore it, you will never exhaust it. And the process of exploring it is how he becomes your God and you become his people. You see how he loves you and you respond and you respond to that and you become uh, ultimately what you were created to be, which is God's person, God's people. And he is your God. He's the thing that you're trusting and worshiping in. But I wanted to highlight one last thing. And this is, this is point number five. The things that usually feel like the burdens and the living by faith and the, uh, uh, you know, okay, this is the catch to being a Christian— uh, when you understand things in this paradigm, they actually become the reinforcements of what God's love looks like. You know, so uh, let me just give you an example of what this means. Lots of us stress about our future. Lots of us stress about what will happen to us, our careers, our mortgages. You know, you're listening to Dave Ramsey and you're like, man, I'm like negative five baby steps behind or whatever. Like I am just so far in the hole right now and you're so stressed about it and you're like, what, what, what am I going to do? And we all stress about these kinds of things and then you're told to live by faith and you're saying, man, I don't know how to do that. That just seems like such a burden. Like what does that even look like? And it just seems like this huge weight to put on you. But when you're understanding things this way, it's not I have to live by faith. It's I get to live by faith. It changes the whole thing because now it's not something that you have to do. It's that I know that God is in control. I know that he loves me. I know that he promises to take care of me. I know that he promises to uh, get me through any circumstances, that he will be with me in any circumstances. And ultimately, if it all falls apart and the world ends tomorrow, we know that he wins in the end. And so we don't have to carry that burden of what will happen to us. We get to live in faith knowing that, okay, God is with us. God is taking care of us. God is there for us. And you start to see, wow, even in the things that used to feel like burdens under the old box cover, now actually become ways to reinforce how much God loves us. And again, like I said, this is how we become God's people. We look at his love, we go deeper into his love, and we respond to that love, and we grow. And uh, really, there's nothing else to be said except for us to now take a time and just respond in worship to that, that that's how much God loves us, that God is this God who is so amazing that he wouldn't hold anything ever against us, that he would just love us unconditionally. And so we're going to take an opportunity to respond in worship in a couple ways. Uh, the band is going to come up, and they're going to play, and we're going to get a chance to sing. But we're also going to have people uh, made available to you to pray. I'll be up front. Some other people will be taking stations around the room. And maybe you are saying, man, I've been trying this Christianity thing, and I realize what I have been doing is not really what's been given to me. And what the rat race that I've been trying is not really what God has offered to me. And you want, uh, you want to have a different relationship with God. These people would love to pray with you and talk with you about what that looks like. Uh, but they're also available to you to pray with you if there's anything else that's going on in your life. So I'm going to pray, and we will move into a time of worship and response to our God. Lord, thank you for being you. I don't know what else could be said other than we thank you for your love. We thank you that you uh, love us in, in ways that... Uh, just are so amazing and so beyond what we deserve. We thank you that that's the way that you bring us into your family, that that's the way that you bring us to the banquet table is by giving us your love. Uh, And now as we move into a time of worship, let us have that sink into our hearts through your spirit, Lord, and that would be something that sustains us the rest of the day. In your name, amen.